Okay, welcome everyone to tonight's uh, Dhamma session. I have to have a name for it. The Buddha said, if you meet often together, this is a a a reason why a reason for uh, not not fading away. Or if, or if we meet together as a community, our community stays strong. This is the means of keeping your community strong. So we chanted um, some verses and praise of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, and then we chanted the offerings, and then we chanted the Ratana Sutta. Um, some different people have asked why we do the chanting, what's it for? One of the best reasons is just to calm our minds down before we get into the real Dhamma. So it doesn't matter if you understand what's being spoken or not. It's good if you can read through and get an idea of what we're chanting, but it's not the most important. It's useful just to calm our minds and to collect ourselves, because we're all coming from um, different types of busyness. And so to bring us all together and get us all in harmony and in sync, in tune, we do some chanting to start off. Another reason is to remember, remember and memorize the teachings of the Buddha, to keep them in mind. So for those of us who do know Pali, it's a good means of remembering various uh, teachings of the Buddha that are essential, various important teachings of the Buddha. The Ratana Sutta, I wouldn't say it's a core or, or even relatively speaking important teaching of the Buddha. It's much more a praise and a reminder for, for us of the greatness of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And it's by that greatness by recollecting the greatness and thinking of the virtuous qualities of the Buddha, the virtuous qualities of the Dhamma, the virtuous qualities of the Sangha, um, well-being is attained. So we chant at the end of every verse, Hetena Satchena Suvati Hoto. Suvati is... Um, a prolonged or a, an expanded version of a common Pali word, soti. Soti and sawati. Suati in this one, no? Suati. Suati and soti, this is actually the the same word as what we call uh, Sanskrit would be swas, swasti. Swasti and so this is where we get the word swastika. Swastika means one who, or something that brings well-being. 
Uh, and so to, to break it up further, su means well or good or swa in Sanskrit, I think. Um, and then ati or asti, asti in Sanskrit, ati in Pali means uh, is or being, it refers to being. So suati means well-being. That's where the word swastika, swastika comes from. It's actually a Sanskrit word. And so you see it in India, you see it in, even Buddhism has adopted this, the swastika, although I think it's, not, it's turning in the opposite direction of the Nazi one. A little trivia. Um, but the word, the word swasti or soti or suvati is um, has a place in Buddhism. The Buddha actually talked about it. He he explained how we go about finding well-being. So this is an interesting thing to think about. It's a it's a useful sort of teaching that the Buddha gave. He gave this teaching. He gave a teaching on how to find well-being. He gave it to a an angel, as I said, the story of this angel is that uh, his name was Subrahma, Subrahma, and he had a thousand followers, so all these angels up in heaven, and uh, they would spend their days frolicking in the in the gardens under these flowered trees and they would play these games where 500 of the angels would go up in the trees and throw flowers down and five and the other 500 angels at the, at the under the trees would catch the flowers this is how pure the sort of games they had there was no uh, Duke Nukem or <laughs> I don't know what you play now <laughs> the games they play in heaven are a lot different they didn't play paintball in the in the gardens of heaven the games they play and this is climbing up and singing and dancing and throwing flowers down to the angels below this is how they spent their days in heaven one, so one day Subrahma went out to his gardens with his angel retinue and he was down on the ground with 500 of them and he didn't hear the other 500 angels up in the trees and he thought to himself, what happened to them? And he used his angel powers to see. And he realized they weren't up in the trees. They had disappeared. And he used his divine eye to figure out where they were. And he realized they'd all, they'd all gone to, and been reborn in hell. And he thought, well, that's kind of odd, you know. Not more than odd, he was shocked and terrified. How did that happen? And he realized it was because they were being they 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 had uh, spent no time cultivating goodness in their mind. And so when they when they died, their minds were full of fear and anger. And based on that, and based on their you know their inability to um, to cope with loss, they were born in hell. That's what the commentary says. And 
he realized that his life was almost finished as well and, and he was destined probably to follow them. And so he went to the Buddha and he said, Oh, I can't find well-being. What should I do? Where, how can one find well-being? And the Buddha said, in this famous, famous verse, Nanyatra boja tapasa, nanyatra indriya samura, nanyatra sabanisaga, sotim pasami paninang. Which means, nanyatra means not nowhere else but, na anyatra, anyatra means other than, na anyatra means not other than, nanyatra boja, which means wisdom, tapasa, which means effort. Nanyatara indriya sambara, not other than uh, guarding the senses. Nanyatra sabanisaga, not other than giving up anything, everything, giving up everything. Sabanisaga. So ting pasami paninang, do I see well being for beings? So not other than these four things, so pasami, do I see? Nowhere else but these four things do I see well-being for beings. So this is a useful teaching for us, inspired by the Ratana Sutta. The Ratana Sutta, every verse says, Etena suvati hotu. So the idea is to bring well-being through the power of the Buddha's teaching. We want to know, well, how do we, where, where do we find well-being? How do we find well-being? What is it about the Buddha's teaching that will bring us a state of, of security and stability and well, well, general well-being? So these are four good qualities that we should we should keep in mind. Bodja, obviously wisdom. Buddhism starts and ends with wisdom. If you want to, uh, if you want to give the sal the single salient quality of Buddhism, it's not really mindfulness. Although you you know you're getting there. It's 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 up there. But mindfulness is only for the purpose of wisdom. It is wisdom that leads to freedom. And if you read through the Buddha's teachings, and the, the feeling that you get right away, quite quickly, once you read the Buddha's teachings, is this isn't about faith, it's not about power, it's not about attainment or greatness, it's just about wisdom and understanding. The Buddha's teaching is for the purpose of attaining wisdom, obtaining wisdom. Um, you know, given that the purpose for attaining wisdom is freedom, because freedom is, of course, the final goal. If, if you just got wise and didn't get anything out of it, but wisdom is that which leads to freedom. That's kind of the kind of a summary of the Buddha's teaching. So, not faith leads to freedom, or power leads to freedom, or uh, greatness, or uh, affluence, or so on leads to freedom. No wisdom leads to freedom. There was a an argument, there's a famous argument if you read the Mahosada Jataka, the, the Jataka about this 
the, the, the wisest man who ever lived, kind of like a Solomon, uh, King Solomon in the, in the, in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Mahosada, <coughs> uh, he was the wisest man who, you know, he, was, he was this wise man who you know, at the age of seven was showing an incredible um, what do you call pre precocious ability uh, he was able to solve problems and they 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 began to test him when he was young and some of the ways they tested him <laughs> the way the ways he solved their their tests because the the king had four I think yeah, had four wise men already, but they were fools. The king was a fool. It's like a, if you read this, it's like a comedy in some respects, because the king was a fool, and his four wise men were fools. And they were, they knew that if this little boy became his, they 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 saw these signs. The king had a dream that there was this great light uh, fire. There were these four fires, and then this great blaze burst up in, in in their midst, making them all seem meaningless or insignificant. And they realized that what this meant was there was going to be a fifth wise man coming. And they found him, realized it was this child. And they were afraid, so they tried to make impossible tests for him, kind of like Hercules. And one, like one of their tests was uh, they... They sent him. Uh, they sent him a cow, a big cow, and they said uh, to, the, to his village. And they said, "Okay, your village has to uh, get the get the calf out of the, what do you call? It? Help this cow give birth. Uh, if you don't, everyone gets everyone in the village gets fined a thousand gold coins or something like that. And it was a bull." It was a male cow. <laughs> you understand? Can a male cow give birth? No. Uh oh. So they got a problem. So they went to Mahosata, the seven year old child. And they asked him. And he said, Just that? Is that all? And so he, he asked them to find this man who, who was a good talker find a man who was, a, who was a good at talking, fast talker, kind of like a, someone with chutzpah, as we'd say, you know, confident. And uh, he explained him what to do, and so he sent this guy off to see the king. The guy goes to the palace doors and gates and bangs on the, on the door. The guards are like, what do you want? I'm here to see the king about this, this, I'm here to see the king. Uh, and they argue, argue, and finally they go and tell the king, there's a man here to see you, says he's from this village. Uh, he, want, he wants to see the king. So they bring him in, and he says to the king, I'm pregnant, I want you to help me give birth. <laughs> the king says, you're a man. He says, well, you sent us a bull, and then, you know, said we're going to help it give birth, so... <laughs> Come on. <laughs> and the king accepted the... There's a few he, he, he solved in this way. This is my favorite way of solving things. The, but the best one was when they asked him to uh, 
they go to the village and they say, look, the king has this pond and he's tired of it. He wants a new pond. So we want you, your village to bring him a new pond. And uh, if you don't, everyone in the village gets fined a thousand gold coins. So they're thinking, how could we get him a pond? What, do you, what does he think? We're going to bring him a pond. And now says, come on, this is easy. And he gets all the men in the village together and he tells them what to do. And they show up at the king's gate in force, covered in water and mud and with ropes and sticks and everything. And they come to the gates and they pound on the wall, pound on the gates, and they demand to see the king. And they go in to see the king and they say to the king, oh, your majesty, we found one. And she was a beauty, the perfect pond for you. But when we got her close to the palace gates, she spooked and ran. So here's what we, we propose. Give us your old pond, and we'll mate them together. And we'll use it as a lure to get the new pond <laughs> into the palace. And so, of course, the king couldn't do that. So they won. And the many tests like this. There was one that wasn't a test, but something he solved, he helped... Uh, and it, it's actually quite similar to a story of King Solomon, which is why I brought him up. The story goes that there was a, a woman bathing in uh, the bathing pools, and she had a young, a, a, a young baby, and she put it down beside the pool, and she went into the water, and another woman came up and said, Oh, is this your beautiful baby? And she said, Yes. Can I, do you mind if I hold her? And so she picked her up and, and started holding this baby. And then as soon as she kind of got it in her arms, she turned and ran away with, the, with this other woman's child. And the woman starts screaming and running after her and catches up with her and she says, Give me my baby back. And the woman looks at her, What are you, crazy? This is my baby. And the woman, What are you, you just took that baby? And so they scream and they yell and they, the people, got, a large crowd gathers and they say, Oh, we have to take this to Mahosada and see what he has to say about it. And so they do, and Mahasiddha looks at them, and he knows right away which one is the mother, because he's the Bodhisattva, and he's, about, he's soon to become a Buddha. And he says, well, look, I can't figure it out. He says, here's what we'll do. He puts, puts a line on the ground, and he puts the baby, he takes the baby, and he puts the baby on the, on the line, and, he's, and he says, okay, now one of you take hold of the legs, and one of you take hold of the hands and pull. And whoever succeeds in getting the baby across the line gets to take the baby home. So they, they queue up, grab the, grab the baby, and they start, and he says, okay, one, two, three, go. And they start pulling. And what do you think the baby does? Oh yeah, the baby starts screaming. The woman holding on to the baby's feet lets go and starts crying. And the woman who's holding on to the hands pulls it across the line and carries it and says, It's mine, it's mine. Now who is the mother? The one who let go. So Mahosada says, Who do you think was the mother? The one who can bear who who, who can't bear to see her baby cry and lets go and starts crying herself? Or the one who doesn't care and will pull it until it 
gets shorn limb from limb. And so they figure out who is the mother. The point, be, the point of the whole story, it's a long story, is that wisdom is, wisdom is most precious. Uh, at one point they have this argument over what's, what's better, wisdom or, wisdom or affluence. You know what affluence is? Affluence means wealth, riches, money. Is it better to be rich or better to be wise? Don't give me the answer I want to hear. Come on, which is better? What if I give you a million dollars? If I said, okay, you have to be stupid, but I'll give you a million dollars. That's not good? Why not? Don't you mean, what's the point of having a million dollars if you're stupid? That's it. <laughs> what's the point of having a million? Well, because you can do lots of stuff. With a million dollars, you can buy lots of Xbox games. Sorry? It'll run out. Why would it run out? Because you're stupid. <laughs> That's a good one, though. She's not stupid. You have a very smart daughter. And son. Very good. So they argued about this, though. And the king was sure that, well, when, when Mahosada said, no, wisdom's more important, the king said, who's the boss here, me or you, right? The king wasn't happy about this. Like, and Mahosada says, well, you know, whether you're happy or not, you can't live without me. You, know, you may have all the money in the world, but without me, you're nothing. And it was true. If you read the Mahosada Jataka, you'll see. He would, have been, he would have been slaughtered and killed many, many times if it weren't for Mahosada in the story. It was just too, too simple. Wisdom is a great, great thing. With wisdom you can do anything. You know, why do people get rich in the first place? It's not because they work really hard. They have a lot of wisdom. This man who was a millionaire, he's, he said he made his first million when he was 19 years old. This is what he said. I don't know if it's true. He could have been lying about it all. I don't know. But he said this. And he said to me something interesting. He said, the reason why people don't get rich is because they work too much. Because if you're busy working, you can't get rich. Some of the things he said had a lot to do with the Dhamma. You know, not, not about getting rich, but the same thing applies. You don't succeed in life because you just work and work and work and, 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 and run and run and run. Your work has to have meaning. Your work has to use wisdom. It has to be something beneficial. Because, you know, people who, uh, who wage wars have to work very hard. Soldiers have to work very hard. Even uh, terrorists have to work very hard just to succeed in their task. Um, you can work, work, work very hard in the uh, stock market. You can work very hard to cheat people. You can work very hard in many, many ways that are harming the environment, harming society. The success doesn't come from working. It doesn't come from uh, doesn't come from talking or cheating other people. It comes from wisdom.
if you, if you for example, if you have a skill, if you if you go to if you go to law school and you go to medicine, medical school, uh, then you don't need money, right? Because anywhere you go, you can get a job and make money. Money is easy once you have knowledge. But if you don't have knowledge, you know, people who work in McDonald's, they have to work very hard. Maybe you could even, I don't know, as hard as a doctor or a lawyer, but I know some lawyers don't work very hard, but they make a lot more money, you see. Something to think about. This is in the world. This is talking about wisdom in the world. But in the Dhamma, it's quite similar. Some people meditate and meditate and meditate, even, even in terms of meditation, and don't get anywhere. Because they're not using wisdom. It's called ayoni so manasikara. They practice without wisdom. You need yoni so manasikara. You need with wisdom. It's like, it's, you might say, like barking up the wrong tree. Do you know this expression, barking up the wrong tree? It's, uh, it comes from the fact that what, what dogs often do is they chase a squirrel. And the squirrel goes up one tree and they start barking up another tree. Because they saw the squirrel go up the tree, but they mistaked. They got the wrong tree, so they're barking and barking, and the squirrel's gone to another tree already. And they're barking and barking and barking. But we use it for humans as well. We, uh, we do, in this example, talking about meditation, we can push very hard in meditation and, and not get anywhere. Like the Buddha. He meditated, you know, he meditated, the bodhisattva, how he meditated? He meditated by holding his breath until he heard, uh, he felt wind, he felt wind coming out of his ears, he said. He heard this noise in his ears, like there was wind actually, come, or air coming out of his ears, actually. The wrong meditation doesn't get you anywhere. It has to be meditation based on wisdom or uh, focused on wisdom, focused on reality, focused on understanding reality. So we can meditate right here and right now. This is, we can meditate in many ways. You can sit here and you can ignore me. Huh? You can ignore the sound of my voice, ignore everything. You can try to just stop yourself from thinking. Some people meditate like this, stop thinking. Force yourself to stop thinking. But that's not the Buddha's way of practicing meditation. The Buddha's way of practicing meditation is to understand reality. Yatha bhutang jnana dasanam. Knowledge and vision of things as they are. Yatha bhutang. So, instead of stopping the thoughts, we're going to watch them. Watch our thoughts, watch our feelings, watch our senses, when you see something, you see it as seeing. When you hear something, see it as hearing. When you feel pain, instead of jumping around and moving around, look at it as pain. When you feel hot or cold, when you feel good or bad, when you feel happy or sad, see it as good, as bad, as happy, as sad. Just remind yourself. No, no, it's not, this is not that, it's, it is what it is. Happy, happy, sad, sad, whatever it comes, whatever comes, we just remind ourselves of what's going on. 
keep ourselves in an objective state of mind. And what happens is you start to see the patterns, you start to see what you're doing. Oh, now I know why I, I suffer. Now I know why I'm so grumpy about this, about that. Now I know why I'm so unhappy when this happened. You see? So the next time that pain comes, you see it just as pain. You say, that's not really bad. It's just pain. And you don't have to cry, you don't have to get upset. You just see it for what it is, pain, pain. And you realize that all of the problems that we have is because we don't look. We don't really see what's going on. When you have pain, why do you cry? That's not a reason. It just hurts. Why do you have to cry? The reason is because when you cry, drugs come out of your brain. Right, Dr. Ravi? Mm -hmm. When you cry, you get drugs. <laughs> you get stoned or high, you get high. You know? what, what comes out of the brain? Endorphins, no? Yeah, endorphins. Endorphins. Even with happiness. Even with happiness. So when you cry, what is an endorphin? It's a... It's not a steroid, is it? It's a steroid? No. But it makes you happy. So the point is that when you, when you, when you cry, it makes you happy. Isn't that funny? We always think when you cry, it's because you're sad. Or when you cry, you, you're sad You're sad when you're crying. But no, you cry because you're sad in order to make yourself happy. Because crying actually does bring happiness to the brain. And, this is, and so the point being that we prefer happiness to sadness. So we learn that by crying, we are going to be happy we'll be happier than if we have to focus on the pain. We prefer one to the other. We don't have to cry if we can focus just on the pain and see it just as pain, not as bad, and not become against it, not react to it. We don't need to be drug, drug druggies, drug addicts. There's nothing wrong with crying, I'm not trying to say that, but it's, it be, it's a habit that uh, it becomes habit-forming. You can't cry your way out of, situ out of a situation. You know, the, the underlying problem doesn't go away. The suffering doesn't go away. The suffering doesn't, doesn't, uh, isn't avoided. You have to feel the suffering still. But when we understand the suffering as just, or the pain as just pain, then we don't suffer from it. So the, the, the meditation that we try to practice is based on wisdom. The Buddha said, this is where you find well-being. And you find it for this reason, because you don't react to it. You don't suffer from it. This isn't a theory or a, an idea, it's the truth. Anyone who practices it can find for themselves. If you just remind yourself of the pain as pain, 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 
you 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 free yourself immediately from the suffering because of it because your mind is just seeing it as pain it's no longer seeing it as a problem it might take a little bit of time in the, in the beginning you 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 do it a little bit and then you but it hurts <laughs> so you have to work at it and the stronger the pain the harder it is of course because we have these habits in the mind the habit to to dislike the habit to um, judge we have judgments in them. We judge everything. And our judgments lead us to suffering. When we just see things, it is this, it is this. We don't suffer because of it. This is the, the key to Buddhism, is to see things as they are. Yatha, Buddha, Jnana, Dasana. Just to see things as they are. It, it, so, so wisdom is not intellectual. It's not you agreeing with me or disagreeing with me. It's you seeing it for yourself, seeing that pain is just like this. Pain is not bad, it's not me, it's not mine, it's just pain. And you can do this anywhere. You can do this at work. My grandmother, my grandmother, they put her in an old age home. And uh, the doctors, or the, whoever it is in an old age home, they get, they get overworked, I think, or, or maybe just lazy, I don't know. And, they gave her too much medication, painkillers. So she was a, she was a zombie. She was drugged, and then finally, our, my my my, you know, the, her her daughters inquired about this, and you know why is she? And brought her to a doctor, and the doctor said, "Whoa, she's not supposed to be taking that much painkiller. She's she's totally drugged up." And so they started reducing it, and she started crying like a baby. And I went to this is when I went to see her, and she was crying. In, in horrible pain, her hip, she had a hip replacement and never worked out, and she was in horrible pain, just coming, trying to get off these, these pain medications. She just couldn't, uh, couldn't cope. She, she had you know, built up this habit of avoiding the pain. Whenever there's pain, give her a little more pain. Uh, and so when she had to come off, oh, it was, she was this 80-year-old woman crying like a baby. She had never learned how to deal with pain. And so she had me do chanting. I was a monk at the time. I was just newly ordained. I didn't know really how to teach her meditation. Uh, so I did some chanting for her. She was Christian, but she was, you know, she wanted me to come as well. And then she said, "Oh, that's wonderful. Just like a little prayer." And then she said, "Now bring in the rabbi. I bring in a rabbi. I want to cover all the bases." She said. She was a wise woman. I had a good sense of humor. But but she was in so much pain she couldn't deal with it. So what would you do if that if you were in that position? Well, this is something that uh, we all we all have to to ask. We're not none of us free from the uncertainty of the future. We have different ways of running away from pain. I heard a story today about a Lama Jerry he had a car accident. No, he got hit by a car. He was standing beside his car, taking a photograph, and another car hit him and squished him between two cars. Can you believe? And he's still alive. And so they said they took a, a patch of his skin off his stomach, or off his chest or something, and put it on his leg. They had to graft it onto his leg. And he, had a, he used to have a scar on his stomach, and now the scar is on his leg. <laughs> 
But apparently, and I don't, I don't know if I can totally believe this, but apparently he didn't have any anesthetic. That seems to me very difficult to, to believe. But uh, at least he had no painkillers. I think maybe that's what the truth was. I don't know. But uh, the, the point is, his ability to deal with pain, from what they say, is much stronger than the ordinary human being. I don't know whether he's using vipassana or just mind power. Because another way is doctors can do this. A doctor told me in Thailand, he said, he can stitch himself up without anesthetic. And and how he does it, he was asking me, because he came to practice, I was teaching him meditation. And he said, why is it that I can stitch myself up without anesthetic uh, and not be upset about the pain? But there's sit in meditation and the pain in my back, why can't I deal with that? Why is it so much worse and why does it aggravate me when the intense pain in my finger doesn't? The answer is because he's using power of mind here. He's not using wisdom, but he's forcing his mind to uh, focus on the act, to focus on uh, the on a single point. So it's samatha, it's, it's, it's a power of mind, it's not wisdom. Like there was this monk in in in, uh, in England that I heard about. He had uh, he took a candle and he burnt his finger down to the bo down to the the joint the last joint. He burnt his finger off. Took a candle and slowly 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 burnt his finger down to the. So he has no pinky finger left. He did it as an offering to the Buddha. This was a Vietnamese monk. <laughs> So we give candles as offering. He gave his whole finger as an offering. I don't know if anyone, anyone of us could ever do that. Probably faint first. But that's the point is he used the power of the mind. So it's not always with wisdom. There's, another way is to just avoid it with the power of power of mind. Because you see the difference. Then this this doctor who could do that, totally focused, couldn't deal with a simple back pain. And he was he was confused. Why is this the truth? Because in Vipassana, we don't use the power of the mind. We let it be. And we force ourselves to understand it. It's quite different. In Vipassana, you have to understand not the pain, you have to understand your aversion to the pain. You have to remove the aversion. Realize that the pain's not the problem, it's the aversion. So you let the aversion come up and you learn to deal with it and you learn to... to uh, give it up to to discard it. You learn that aversion is a wrong response. It's a useless response. It's a unintelligent and unwise response. What good does it do to get angry? Does it make you feel good to get angry? Do you ever get angry? Why do you get angry? Is that the wise thing to do? Mm -hmm. You see, we all have this. We're we're all lacking in wisdom. This is why we get angry. This is why we get greedy. If we had wisdom, we wouldn't do that. So wisdom is the first one. I'm not going to talk too much. No? First one is wisdom. Second one is tapasa, means effort. So, okay, effort is a part of the equation. Tapasa means you have to work hard. So once, but you see, the first one was wisdom. Don't do effort first. Start with wisdom as your base. And then put out effort in cultivating wisdom means you can't just agree with me and say, yes, yes, I know anger's no good. No, let me go back home and yell at my mom. <laughs> you have to put out effort. You have to work so that you don't yell at your mom. 
have to we have to put it into practice. So we can do that right now. If you if you understand, try it. See what's going on right now. Do you feel happy and do you feel unhappy? Look at those things. Understand them. If you feel happy, say to yourself, happy, happy. If you feel unhappy, unhappy. If you feel bored, bored. If you feel uh, tired or distracted or worried or or doubt or confused, no. All of the hindrances, whenever they come up, uh, examine them, learn about them. You can close your eyes and just look at them right now. This is effort. See, we have to actually do something. Buddhism is not a not an, a yeah yeah I agree religion. It's a religion of yeah yeah I'm, I'm doing it religion. It's a hands on. You have to work. You can't just believe. It's like uh, I heard that Goenka S N Goenka. He teaches. Uh, he said. If a doctor gives you a prescription, what do you do? Do you go home and put it on the wall and chant it? I will take, you must take three pills every day. <laughs> sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. <laughs> you don't do that. You know, light, like I said, you put it up on the, on the table and light candles and incense and chant the, <laughs> chant the prescription. No, you don't do that. You take the pills. So... Buddhism is like that. Buddhism is for the purpose of actually practicing. So right here and now we can start practicing. Tapasa, this leads to well-being. Because if you're lazy, if you just, you know, it's a good example, if you just chant your prescription three times a day, you won't get better. Well, you might, your chanting can be wholesome, so you might get a little better. But it probably won't cure your cancer or you know, whatever sickness, lower your cholesterol. It will a little bit. Chanting can be very calming. But it won't, won't heal your it won't. It's not the purpose of the prescription. This isn't the purpose of the Buddha's teaching to just chant it or to just believe it. And number three, Indriya samvara. Indriya samvara means guarding the senses. So here's where Subrahma, this, this angel, was, was in the wrong because all of them were very much attached to sensual pleasures. So it's, when an angel dies, it's a quite a scary thing because you think how much, how much we get attached to flowers. Imagine being in heaven with heavenly flowers and we get attached to food. Imagine if you had angel food. Angel food is the most wonderful thing in the world. No, it's not in the world. The most wonderful thing. It's not, it's not of this world. Right? Uh, an angel... Could you imagine the, the, the pleasures of heaven? They're so much better, so much more wonderful, but they're so much all the more difficult to let go of when you have to give them up. So by not guarding his senses, by not being... Uh, objective, he became even more addicted to sensuality than humans do because it's much stronger, the pleasure. We should guard our senses, meaning we should uh, realize and understand these doors, uh, doors to reality, doors of perception. 
we cleanse the doors of perception. Wasn't that Aldous Huxley? It said, cleanse the doors of perception. So I don't think he really knew how to cleanse them, but the, he thought he did. I don't know much about him. Uh, but we try to cleanse the doors of perception in a different way, to just see seeing as seeing, hearing as hearing, smelling as smelling, tasting as tasting, feeling as feeling, thinking as because addiction, arri addiction arises at the six doors. We create the habit. The brain, uh, the brain stimulates us, and then the mind says the mind gets excited about it, and the brain remembers that. The brain remembers the excitement, and the next time it gets, it reminds us about it. Hey, remember that. So this is why we think at the oddest times we start thinking about Xbox or start thinking about food, or we start thinking about candy, or we start thinking about sex, or we start thinking about anything that brings us pleasure. Because the brain is, is keeping, we don't have to, we've got a good secretary, keeps, keeps track of all the things we like, and reminds us at the worst of possible times. So we'll be sitting trying to meditate, and suddenly, cheesecake, or who knows what. No. Uh, if you're wondering why it happens, well, this is the scientific explanation. Uh, I mean, it's my half-baked explanation, anyway. How the, the brain keeps track. Quite obviously does, because it, there's, there's something going on there. There's very much power that comes from our excitement over them. But it doesn't happen if you're mindful of the object. If you just... Tasting the cheesecake, tasting, tasting, and swallowing. You don't even remember having cheesecake. You, know, you don't. You don't ever think about it again. Someone would have to ask you, "What did you?" Eat? And you have to think back. Oh, I had cheesecake, but you would never think, "Oh, I want cheesecake again," because there was no, there was no spark. It doesn't mean you don't have cheesecake or you don't feel even the pleasure of having cheesecake, but you don't like it, you don't have the liking for it. You're just at peace. Your happiness doesn't depend on the cheesecake. When people say, I love cheesecake, it makes me so happy. It's not pathetic. Your happiness depends on, on fat from a cow and sugar. That's kind of a silly sort of happiness, isn't it? We try to think in more spiritual and universal terms, real happiness. So guarding the senses is important, be not because we want to deny ourselves happiness, but because we want to, we try to avoid mistake, uh, mistaking unhappiness for happiness. Because there are many things that trick, that are false happinesses. Cheesecake is a false happiness. You don't really become a happier person the more cheesecake you eat. You really don't. And that's the thing, because we think, well, it's happiness when I have it, but we don't realize it's making us more unhappy. Cheesecake's a bad, a bad example, isn't it? Because you get fat and, and sick when you eat too much cheesecake. But with anything, even if it doesn't physically affect you, it's all false happiness.
And so we're not, remember this, guarding the senses sounds so terrible because you, where's your happiness? That's the point. Stop chasing false happiness. This is what we're trying to do. So you won't find well-being by chasing after the senses because the mind remembers and reminds us and gets more and more uh, belligerent about it the more we chase it reminds us more and more often and more and more intensely and we need more and more stimulus just to feel the same amount of pleasure. And so we become miserable, wretched beings if we don't learn to moderate it. So we try to guard through mindfulness. And the fourth one is the best one, giving everything up. Giving everything up comes from wisdom. So it all goes together. But the real summary, it's like the Buddha said, this and this and this, and you know, honestly, if you get right down to it, sabbanisaga, giving up everything. You can't possibly be happy, uh, be, be, be at, at ease or at peace without letting go of everything, without truly letting go. Letting go of everything doesn't mean one by one, actually. It means letting go completely, uh, having no attachment no stickiness in your mind. So it's not like you have to say, first I'll let go of my mother, then I'll let go of my father, then I'll let go of my brother, then I'll let go of my sister. You just stop clinging. You don't need to cling anymore. You don't need anything anymore. You're happy. You're at peace. And this is something that's beyond an angel, beyond God, beyond the universe. You see, there's nothing in the universe, nothing the universe can throw at you. This is the question that is answered, this amazing question that we actually have an answer for. How do you live in such a way that as to, as to be invincible to any problem? You have to, what is the solution to all of life's problems, you see? They think, oh, that's a difficult one. This problem has this solution, that problem has that solution. It's not true. The solution to all of life's problems is let it go. When you don't have clinging to anything, it can't hurt you. When you're not partial for or against anything, nothing can hurt you. Meaning is when you're mindful. When a person is simply aware this is this. It's the answer to all problems. Whenever a problem comes up, what am I going to do? If you're mindful, you won't even have to ask. They can kill you. They can steal everything you have. But they can't hurt you. They can't make you suffer. No one can make you suffer. Only you can do that. Remember that. No one can make you suffer. Nothing can make you suffer. Only you can make yourself suffer. So, that's the Buddha's teaching on well-being very useful one, very good for a meditation. And I think that's enough talking for tonight. So now we'll do a little bit of group meditation and then we'll have our daily meeting.